Well, thank you, Bonnie and Bonnie, for your wonderful service of uh, worship there to us. And thank you for the selections that do focus in and kind of reorient our hearts um, to the reality that uh, joy can be had during difficult times and that despite our circumstances, we can indeed find joy in the Lord. So I hope that is a truth that all of you carry closely to your hearts. And uh, this morning, I want to uh, draw our attention again to the book of Philippians. If you will make your way to Philippians chapter 2. This morning, I'm going to be covering uh, verses 16 through 18 in a message that I've entitled, Marks of a Model Minister, or Marks of Model Ministers, because we're going to be looking at a few of them. Uh, We will be addressing one today with the uh, life of the Apostle Paul from these texts and some of the things we we glean from that. I guess in our situation, we could also title today's message, What to Look for in a Pastor. It's a very important question to ask and a very important topic to always consider. What, What are the marks of genuine model ministers? Now, when we talk about role models, I think we would all agree that in life we cannot overemphasize the importance of having good role models. Uh, And there are really all kinds of models to choose from out there. There are sports heroes, people who work hard to attain certain athletic goals and human accomplishment and setting amazing, amazing strides and records of physical achievement. There are also teachers and coaches, and I always smile in my heart as I remember all of the teachers in my life that have invested in me and the coaches and such. I was a cross-country runner at one time in junior high school, and I have fond memories of the impact that was left upon me, and I trust you share similar memories of those who brought the best out of us and who who demanded uh, more and more and more, and it even caused us to surprise ourselves for what we could do. I am highly fond of many military Uh, role models. I always think of General Patton or Field Marshal Montgomery, Colonel Hal Moore from We Were Soldiers, or Admiral James Stockdale who flew F-4 Phantoms and flew over Vietnam only to be shot down and tortured and survived and later became a role model on how to survive some of the most difficult things in life. We have role models of businessmen, statesmen, scientists, inventors, the list could go on and on, all who are known for accomplishing much despite adversity. And the Bible speaks of role models as well. The Bible speaks regularly of pastors and teachers and encouragers, role models to be followed and emulated. In fact, it is said that imitation is some of the best forms of flattery because when we imitate others, we're saying we get that. We appreciate that. We might even be saying we want to be like that because we value that. And so there is certainly, certainly good reason to model various biblical role models. The concept of biblical role models is key to an understanding of true discipleship. We throw discipleship around oftentimes in churches, but Discipleship can really be boiled down to 2 Timothy 2, 2, which says, The things which you have seen and heard in me, these entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. 
And so we see four generations of discipleship from that which the Apostle Paul advanced and handed to the hands and responsibility of young Timothy, and then that which Timothy would find faithful men to invest in who will also in turn invest in others. And you are the others this morning. You are the beneficiaries of that role model process coming down through the ages. It does not surprise us in 1 Corinthians 1.11 when the Apostle Paul then says, follow me as I follow Christ. We need human uh, examples. We need to imitate people that we can see and touch and feel and, and interact with. And Paul even told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12 where he was struggling with various difficulties in that uh, assignment in Ephesus. In 4.12 he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness but rather in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. Show yourself an example for those who believe. This issue of example is replete throughout the scriptures. In Hebrews 13.7, we are reminded that our leaders are to be examples to us. It says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Watch their conduct and imitate them, it calls for. And then if you just look in Philippians 3.17 here, just down the way, we'll get to this. It says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. So the idea of biblical example is all throughout the Bible. I just threw four or five verses at you. There's many, many more. Of, of all the above examples of role models that we can have and they bring goodness to our lives the sports heroes the teachers the military the the business and statesmen and all of the things we've mentioned it 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 really is the biblical role model that is most important to us in our lives to have spiritual role models now this morning i'm going to introduce a what will probably be a three-part series entitled Marks of Model Ministers because we're going to look at the marks of who we should be modeling because we, as we will see by the end of today's message, are all ministers in our own right. We're not just talking about pulpit ministry. We're talking about church life and, and church ministry. And so we're going to be looking at three examples in the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus as the weeks progress. The first may not immediately jump off the page to you, but it is, in fact, the Apostle Paul. We're going to be looking at who I have entitled for these messages, Sacrificial Paul. Each one of these individuals will have a name that kind of describes really the core of who they are, at least in this text. Sacrificial Paul can be seen in verses 16 to 18. And we're going to be looking at four, and I'm going to just give you a bonus today. We're going to make this five. We're going to make this five marks. I'm going to call an audible today here because something kind of jumped out at me uh, really this morning as I was reworking this message. My notes say four marks, but the Bible says five marks. So we yield to the scriptures here. Five marks of a model minister. If we imitate as co-ministers, co-laborers will result in tremendous, tremendous benefit to our congregation. So really, if you're taking notes there, between the introduction and point number one, let's put point number zero. Let's call this ground zero, if you will. Let's read the text to find this. Um, I'll back up uh, to verse 14, where he reminds them, as they work out their salvation, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, 
above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And verse 16 is where we see a little bit of the heart of the Apostle Paul here, where he says, holding fast the word of life, that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. These verses are just packed with with information about the Apostle Paul and about his heart and really about the marks of a true minister. So point zero here, ground zero, is this. that That a model minister must first have a firm commitment to the Word of God, right? I mean, that should be obvious. It's so obvious that we miss it. Uh, it, It's so clear that that the Word of God is central to this whole discussion. This is what he last left off with the Philippians saying that this is part of shining uh, light in a dark world is holding fast the Word of life, verse 16. Well, he would be hypocritical if he'd say, well, you need to hold fast the Word of life, but I can have kind of a loose grip on it. What am I saying by this? I'm saying that no pastor, no minister, and I believe no saint, is worth their salt if they do not first have a firm commitment to the word of life. It is the word that we preach. It is the word which we believe. It is the word which we study and proclaim and and attempt to have as a part and parcel of our very lives. It is the word that Paul called Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.2 to preach. And he says to do this, whether in season or out of season. And, and he says, uh, this, uh, I, I may have the wrong uh, text there. I, I believe it's uh, 2 Timothy 4.2. He says, he, he adds a little, uh, he adds a little um, steam onto this fastball that he says. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, and by his kingdom, preach the word. I mean, that is a lot of weight to carry. It's not just saying, yeah, open the Bible once in a while, and, you know, have a a little study. I I mean, he he is adjuring young Timothy here, charging him as if God were witnessing the charge. And Christ Jesus by his side, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his grand appearing, and... Let's just throw in his whole kingdom, by the way. You preach the word. The the word is part and parcel of what we do in the ministry. The word back in 2 Timothy 3.16 is that which really is our lifeblood. It says that uh, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is how we become adequate. A firm commitment to the word of life. And the word of life teaches us. And it pulls us out of ignorance and it pulls us out of error. The word of God reproves us. Because sometimes we think we're doing pretty well and we can pat ourselves on the back all day long. But the word of God comes and says, not so fast. Then the word of God corrects us. It doesn't just say you're wrong all day. He says, the word of God says, this is how we step into the right path. The path of righteousness. And then the Word of God is, is that, that coach that works with us, who's alongside of us, encouraging us, and it says training us in righteousness, all for the purpose that the man of God would be equipped. 
And so really we need to say, well, what do we look for in a minister? What do we look for in a pastor? We must first look for a firm commitment. He says, holding fast the word of life. That is ground zero. That is the, uh, the base commitment. I don't care if the guy's pretty or ugly. I don't care if the guy's educated or uneducated. I, I don't care if the guy's an introvert or an extrovert. He needs to have a firm commitment to the Word of God or he's not qualified to even move forward in the process. It's something we need to think about and always have before us, that firm commitment to the Word of God. Well, let's continue in our series with point number one. That was for free. That was just bonus material here. Now let's look at what else the Apostle Paul here says. He says, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Point number one of our message today is that a, a model minister must have a concern for biblical vision. He must have a concern for biblical vision, biblical outcomes. Think with me here now. You need to see with your mind's eye to grasp this point. That a man of God, if he's going to be true to the ministry, must have the ability to see the future. That's vision. That is what it means to be able to see the big picture. Uh, You could say that this individual must begin with the end in mind. Did you catch that? He must start... By thinking about the end. And does Paul do this? Yes, he does. Look at the text. He says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain. He is concerned about the day of Christ. He is not so much concerned about today other than the work and the toil and the labor and the running, which we'll have to speak about in a moment here that must occur to get to the day of Christ. But his first and foremost concern is vision for the future. And I'm passionate about this because perhaps you have, you have worked for people or you've been associated with people or maybe you've even uh, seen churches that seem to just, well, well, we'll just come and we'll just meet and we'll just kind of hang out and it'll just be fun and then we'll leave and then we'll do it again next week. And, and we really don't know where we're going. We really don't have in mind a, a future destination and destiny, as it were. And it's frustrating, especially like, like in the workplace. Some of you have worked for men or women who just have no vision and perhaps they're retired on duty and perhaps they're just putting in their time and it's like you want this thing to thrive. You want this thing to get up and go and fly and, and you want horsepower put into this thing. But you must submit yourself underneath another who really doesn't care for those things, kind of been there, done that, and is just biding his time. And we don't want to do that. And the Apostle Paul knew nothing of that. This is a critical aspect of leadership. Someone who has vision. Someone who can cast vision. Oh, a lot of guys can cast a fishing pole. A lot of guys can swing a golf club. A lot of guys are, are masters and adept at the remote control. But, but can they cast vision? And that's what we're talking about here. This is rooted in the term overseer, by the way. Elder, episkopos. Overseer is one who sees over things, watches over. And the idea in that term is that he is in a a position to see things that others may not immediately see right now or perhaps choose not to see. That is an overseer. An overseer is one who has vision. And 
So Paul speaks of this vision in terms of present tense reality too. He says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I have reason to glory. Here he makes specific reference to this day of Christ's return is what it is. And Paul had such vision for the day of Christ, he ordered his entire life around it. Everything he did, every thought, every move he made was for the day of Christ. He's an amazing, amazing model minister here in this regard. You could jot down 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 12 where we read, If a man builds upon the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, each man's work will become evident for, note this, the day. What day? The day of Christ. The day will show it. In other words, there's a day coming where all of our efforts and all of our energies and and, and even the attitudes with which we engage in those efforts and energies will be made manifest by the day. And it will be determined whether that was an investment of gold and silver and precious stones or wood and hay and straw. Each man's work will become evident. The day is going to show it, for it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And then it goes on later to talk about if it's, in, if it's done in the proper investment, uh, it will result in reward. And if not, it will be the equivalent of burnt up cardboard. And so it's very, very important that we invest properly in this day of Christ. First uh, Corinthians 4, 3 through 5 continues this, where he says, I don't, don't go on passing judgment before the time. What time? The time of Christ. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart and then each man's praise will come to him from God. He's talking about this last day here. And then he, you could also mention, I won't go there because it'll be just way too convicting, 2 Corinthians 5.10 about the judgment seat of Christ, right? That's, that, that almost brings the terror of it all that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ for that individual personal evaluation of the quality of our work on earth. And what Paul is saying here, back to our text here, in light of the day of Christ, in light of the future reality that we are moving at breakneck speeds toward, he says, I want to have reason to glory. I want to have reason not to have a vainglory or a self-glory or a boastfulness about this, What this means here, the Apostle is saying, I want to have reason to exult in God, is what this word means. To to turn all of these efforts back over to the Lord as my service of worship to Him and to complete my joy as a result of this. The work of the ministry can ultimately have the ultimate effect of joy in an individual's life when it is done for God. And the beneficiaries of the ministry become the crown of that joy. That's right. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19, we read about this very thing. He loved the Philippians dearly, and he loved the Thessalonians dearly, whom he went to after Philippi. First was Philippi, then was Thessalonica. And he asked the question of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. He says, um, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? There that word is again, crown of glory. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? So there's a real reality of the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus that 
really ministers will be able to, if they made the proper investments with the word of God as ground zero, that they will receive a crown of exaltation. And folks, you are ministers. You are those who can invest in others. You can invest the word of God in others as well and have reason to glory. But you know what? Back to Philippians. It doesn't come for free. It doesn't come easy. It comes at great cost. And you say, what is the cost? Of course, the text is going to tell us the cost. Is that I might have the uh, cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This is very challenging, challenging words from the Apostle Paul because I did not run in vain. Paul knows executing this vision is going to take very hard work. He knows that it's one thing to have vision. It is entirely another to have the disciplined work ethic to pull it off and to make it a reality. There are many dreamers in the world, are there not? But there are few doers who can execute those dreams. I love dreamers, don't get me wrong, by the way. I love people who can, can see a better day. I love the, the old hymn that we used to sing, the patriotic uh, Oh, oh, beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years and, and sees what could be. It's not now, but it could be. And I love dreamers, but I'll tell you what, I love doers better. I love people who can say, great dream, let's get to work. What do we do? Where do we go? What are my steps? What am I supposed to do here? And Paul understood that dreams are really nothing without the hard work of, of pull, pulling them off. And he says, this is like a race. Th- th- this is like a, a hard workout, which we've talked about, a toil. And I don't want to run in vain. And I don't want to toil in vain. Run speaks of athletic imagery here. It is uh, often described by Paul, uh, used by Paul rather to describe his ministry. He, he called his ministry a race. And he called our ministry uh, a, a race. And we see this um, in 1 Corinthians 9.24. I apologize, I'm bouncing around here. But you know, Paul... Paul just kind of says the same thing in different ways to different churches and really the same message is, is coming through. But in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, we, we read some interesting uh, language. He says um, in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run a race all run? Well, that's profound, Paul. Thank you. Everyone who runs a race, they all run. But only one receives the prize. And then he says, run in such a way that you may win. Run in such a way that you may win. And the blessed truth about the Christian faith is that we do not run against each other. We run against one person. Do you know who that is? Yourself. That's all it is. We run against ourselves as Christian individuals, as Christian ministers of the gospel. We run in such a way that we may win. And, and Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way, not as to beat you in the race, To beat me in the race, he says. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as to not beating the air, not shadow boxing, being useless and and, and no effectiveness. I aim my punches and I, I hit at my target 
And I even buffet my body. That's buffet my body, not buffet my body. I, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. I'm not slave to my body. My body is slave to me. Lest possibly after having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He doesn't want to lose the race. He doesn't want to run the whole race only to find out that you didn't keep the rules. And he's, he's disqualified at the end of it. It is a race. It's also labor, back to Philippians here. It is toil, the text says. That means hard work. This word means to labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion. And Paul, in many places, talks about the Christian life, the Christian walk being labor. 1 Timothy 4, 7, 8 talks about disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, that's right, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, in both of those, Paul is talking about the, the hard-working aspects of the ministry and that there's to be discipline involved in it. And he likens us to, to farmers and soldiers and, yes, athletes. And if there's any farmers in the bunch, you know it's not an easy task. And if there's any soldiers in the bunch, you know it's not an easy task. And even athletics, although you say, well, it's fun and they get paid a lot in games and, and prizes, the fact is it takes a tremendous amount of work to be any one of those. And so Paul says, I don't want my efforts to be in vain. I don't want to run and toil and work in vain. That is nothingness, emptiness. He's saying, I don't want to, have, I don't want to fear that I have wasted my efforts in life and on you. Now, this is not a word of doubt to the Philippians. This is actually a word of confidence, especially as we see the rest of these points unfold here, confidence that they have genuine faith and that their faith actually manifests itself in a very important way of service to the Lord. Watch how this develops here. He's saying that, that there is a reward coming and he wants them to be part of that. As we, as we leave this point and move on to a couple others here, I just want you to know that I understand that if you're a true believer, you want your life to count, do you not? You don't want to reach the end of your days and say, man, I hope my life just zilch. I hope I get just a zero. I hope I come in last. Nobody really wants that. But, it, but it's difficult sometimes. And it's a challenge sometimes. And I want you to know that I face the same temptations as you do. Temptations to laziness and ten temptations to, to slack and let the time just tick by. But, but there does come a time we realize that this day of Christ is coming. And we, we, we understand that the only way to have value at that last day is to begin working in the truths of the gospel into our everyday lives. The more we invest in the gospel, even with small ways. Some of you have jobs where you just sometimes your smile can be an investment in the gospel. Why, why do you have so much joy? Oh, glad you asked. Why do you have such a positive attitude when the boss wants us to do all this crazy stuff and we have to, you know, coming down from above again, right? Well, um, you know, my Lord says that I do my work unto him. And so, yes, my boss is, my boss is just mid-level management. See, I'm working for the executive of the company, of the world here, and, and so I can have a different attitude about this. And so don't be discouraged, beloved, if you feel like, well, what am I doing for the gospel? And I'm not a preacher, and I'm not a writer, and I'm not sounding forth on the missionary field. But you know what? You are still a witness to the gospel. To the eye of man, your, your little small efforts may appear obscured and confusing, and maybe even to your own eye. But to the eye of God, he sees it. And it's going to your account for the day of Christ. And it will all be made clear one day for its true value.
You may go out with weeping tonight, but there is joy to be had in the morning and your efforts will be made true for what they really are. This is a model minister. Commitment to the word of life. A concern for biblical outcomes and vision. The day of Christ should always be upon us. Next point is this. A model minister must have an awareness of genuine sacrifice. Yeah, if we haven't figured that out by now, we know that's true. An awareness of genuine sacrifice. The Apostle Paul here, as we look at his life, we know that he viewed his entire life as an offering to God. Let's just look at verse 17 for this point. It says, I don't want to run in vain. I don't want to toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. What is he saying here? He's talking about sacrifice. This is the word liturgeo. It's from which we get the word liturgy. And Paul is saying here that I view my entire Christian life as an offering. He says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering. This is an interesting phrase here, which we'll talk about in just a moment here. What is he referring to with, uh, well, let's just hit it. Uh, drink, drink offering here is what's known as a libation offering. There were two types of sacrifices in Israel required by God. There were atoning sacrifices, and then there were sacrifices of, um, you could say, like attitude or thankfulness, gratitude sacrifices. And the drink offering was that very thing. This is gratitude. All sacrifices had, the root, uh, had their root in something valuable and yet willingly given up. But the drink offering was something very special. The drink offering was that which was given alongside of the actual offering. And the, 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 the main course, if you will, was, was put on the grill. But the drink offering consisted of a water or perfume or um, wine sometimes. And it would be something valuable that we don't want to lose or give up. But we're going to pour out before the Lord. You know, um, David did this once in, in the heat of battle. Do you remember this? Uh, David just kind of in passing said, boy, it'd be nice in this hot day of battle to have a drink, drink of water, right? And his men heard that. And you know, any loyal, committed uh, men of war, they're going to be paying attention to their commander and said, hey, boss needs a drink. Let's go get it. And they, they invade the Philistine camp and they go into the Philistine well and they bring back water for David to drink. And David realizes this and he, said, he says, I can't drink this water. And what do he do with it? It says, the text says in 1 Samuel that he poured it out before the Lord. He says, this, this doesn't belong to you. You, you, gave, you could have given the ultimate sacrifice for this. And so he, he pours it out as like a libation here. Well, what is he getting at here? Well, he's getting at Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know this text where the apostle says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, accept, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There's our word again there. This is the sacrificial service that we make. He's liking us all as being Old Testament priests who would conduct sacrifices here. And what he's saying here is that Paul looks like he might possibly be poured out as the drink offering. 
And in an amazing way, he's likening his own lifeblood to those valuable water or wine steam offerings that would go up with the main course of the sacrifice, saying, look, you're the main event, Philippians. You're the main meat behind this whole process here today. I'm just kind of the icing on the cake here. You're the main course. And and I'm just this side sacrifice. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And this is marking him as a model minister, an awareness of genuine sacrifice. He doesn't say, oh, poor me, I'm in prison. Oh, I might be on the chopping block. He's saying, you know what? You have made the sacrifice. What, are they, what is he referring to here? He's referring to the love gift that they gave him to sustain his life at the cost of possibly their own well-being, to sustain his life with some degree of comfort while he was in prison. He even commends them later in verse 14 of Philippians 4, if you look there. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, that's where Philippi was, of course you remember, he says, No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. What a commendation to be put in the permanent record. You were the only church that shared with me of all the churches in Macedonia in the matter of giving and receiving. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. Day of Christ again. He's always thinking of the future here. And then he's like, but I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus, who's going to be one of our model ministers we're going to be looking at later here. I believe this is what he's referring to here saying, you're the offering. And if my blood should be poured out in prison, so be it. So be it. I'll rejoice in that because I'm just the sideshow here. I mean, this is amazing. And I'm telling you guys, this is what you need to look for in a minister. You need to look for a minister who can take a step aside once in a while and be able to say that this is in fact what's really going on here and I'm just kind of the icing here. Don't count me as central to this process here. You, Philippians, are central to the process. What a godly man. What a wonderful, wonderful man. And and this is something we can all learn from. We all need to step aside once in a while, do we not? And, And engage in this priestly service of sacrifice. He's complimenting the Philippians, saying, I'm not so great, but you are. I'm not so big and, and tall and mighty here, but you are. And he's, he's deferring to others as a result of this. You can read more about their gift in 2 Corinthians 8.1. Paul, Paul uh, boasts to the Corinthians about how to do it right. And he talks about the Philippians in there um, as well as uh, what you saw in, in 4.15. But even if I'm being poured out, he says, even if this is God's plan for me, I think optimistically speaking, he didn't believe necessarily this was his day, but, but there was a day coming where he says in Second Timothy, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, right? We see the same words in Second Timothy show up again. Uh, that's 2.24 if you're interested. But the application is this. No, we don't need to kill ourselves for the Christian ministry. We don't need to break our backs for the Christian ministry. But what he's saying here is we need to view our lives as complementary to one another complementary to one another's work and efforts and sacrifices 
and my sacrifices can interweave, uh, interweave into yours and yours interweave and we together present this pleasing aroma to the Lord with all that we do. It tells us that even routine Christian giving, basic meeting of needs can be seen as a glorious, wonderful aroma before the Lord as a sacrifice. These are the marks of a model minister. We've seen that commitment to the Word of God. We've seen that commitment to biblical vision and outcomes. We've seen an awareness and understanding of genuine, genuine sacrifice. I want to add thirdly this morning an understanding of common joy. An understanding of common joy. That, that also is uh, manifested here as he, as he talks about this. Even if I'm being poured out, if I end up dying as a result of this, he says, um, it is upon the uh, sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you. And keep following in verse 18, and you too, I urge, that you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Do you see what he's getting at here? He's saying, look, whatever our circumstances are, whatever our future is, whatever the destiny is, if it's pouring out my own blood on the offering as a pleasing aroma to God, so be it, we are going to rejoice and we're going to share this joy with one another. I rejoice, he says. This is the epistle of joy. He knows that the source of true ministerial joy is not found in a big church or a big name or a big platform or a big opportunity and popularity. He knows true joy may in fact be found, folks, in a martyr's death. In a martyr's death, he says. And this really helps wake us up a little bit when we consider the events of our day and the circumstances and, oh, what's going to happen and all the fear that can come around the, the, the circumstances we have today. That even if it calls us to the martyr's death, we will receive the martyr's crown. He's already made it clear in 121 that to die is gain, but to live on is great profit. Paul knows the Philippians would be plunged into grief if they heard of his death, but he prepared them for either coming or going away, and that joy would be at the root of it all. A proper understanding of the true source of joy starts with interpreting life in light of that truth, not in light of our circumstances. Because in our circumstances, we will not conclude that this is much reason to have joy. But in light of this, in our service to Christ and our offerings to Him, and the joy that we can share with one another as a result of serving one another, that, that's reason to rejoice. Common joy comes from our common struggle. Common struggle associates itself with common sacrifice. Mutual giving results in mutual benefit. Mutual benefit results in mutual joy. And thus, you want to talk about a contagion? Here's, where, here's your contagion. Here it says here that, that I rejoice and share my joy with you, but I want you to rejoice and I'll, I'll share your joy. You'll share your joy with me. And it's just mutual interaction of joy and relationship that we have illustrated here. It's not some plastic joy. It's, it's not some, um, you know, fake face that we paint on. Suffering involves sacrifice. And both suffering and sacrifice, folks, understand this, it is a theological matter. When you suffer and when you, when, when you sacrifice, it is a theological matter. And it can be the direct path of bringing others into true joy as your spiritual sacrifice. If you underline in your Bible, I just want you to note these things here. 
Um, you could underline, um, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Do you see that? You can underline rejoice, you can underline share, and you can underline joy. He's doing something here in the original text. And we see it in the literal translations of the Bible. But then look at verse 18. And you too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. It's almost like he's drawing a symmetrical picture here. And the, 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 port- the, the images in this picture are rejoicing, sharing, and joy Rejoicing, sharing, and joy for each of those verses here. And so we understand that if Paul the Apostle here needs other believers to come around him and share their joy with him, if the Apostle Paul needs others to minister to him, he's an apostle, and he needs the joy of others to be in his life, how much more do we need the joy of others to be in our lives? And this should speak to us how important relationships are in the body of Christ. And even if we cannot rejoice in our circumstances, we still rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in God's holy character. We rejoice in His great goodness. We can rejoice in His amazing grace, His perfect timing, His abundant supply of all of our needs, His sufficient provision for us. And this this is cause to think deeply about the goodness that we receive at the hand of God, so that we can be a medium of joy for others and they for us. Do we need more joy in our lives? It's sourced in the Lord. It's sourced in His provision. It's found in His people. It's found in His Word. We source it through prayer and fellowship with others and being in church and magnifying God in worship and focusing our mind on the Lord. That's where joy lies. Trusting Him in all things and sharing in all things. Now, speaking of all uh, sharing, um, I want to just give you the final point today here because uh, it's easy to get through and really we're going to be picking this up next week, Lord willing. These are the marks of a model minister. And uh, we talked about the concern for outcomes and genuine sacrifice and common joy. But the fourth one we see kind of between the lines a little bit here as we move into the next verses here. Write this down, that, that a model minister has a willingness to share spiritual ministry. He has a willingness to share spiritual ministry. Just take a glance down at verse 19. We're not going to exposit this today here, but I want to get you ready for what's coming next week. This willingness to spare spiritual minis- uh, share spiritual ministry, what, what are you talking about, Eli? I'm talking about verse 19. He says, but I hope, okay, he's just finished talking about himself and the, the offering that he may be. I hope in the Lord Jesus, to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He talks about Timothy, this man who I have no one else of kindred spirit. We're going to learn about Timothy. What an what a amazing young man he is. In verse 22, he talks about his proven worth. And he, he's been with Paul in the trenches. And Paul says, you know what? I can't be there with you, but I'm sending Timothy. And then he later says in verse 25, I also thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. And it talks about how he, how he was sick even to the point of death. 
And uh, it says we're, we're, we're to receive men like him in honor. So we're going to learn about Timothy next week. We're, we're going to learn about Epaphroditus uh, later. But what we learn here as we leave uh, the Apostle Paul, sacrificial Paul, we learn this, is that Paul is willing to share ministry. Very important point of a model minister. Can he share ministry? Can he share the credit? Can he share the glory? Can he share the spotlight? Because a lot of ministers have difficulty sharing that. They are power brokers in the church. They are uh, control freaks, if you will. They are my way or the highway type of people. But a true minister of God, market says, let's share this thing. Let's don't keep it all to one person here. There's lots to go around. In fact, you can't always do it all yourself, which we will see. Here, Paul is an example. I can't be there with you, he's saying. But, but these two can, and I'm sending these two to help. He brings other leaders, up-and-coming leaders in the church. He brings them in, not in a sense to reduce himself. This doesn't reduce anything of the Apostle Paul. This, mag- this multiplies Paul is what is happening here. He is, his effectiveness is being multiplied. He's not stuck on himself and his name and his influence. And That type of approach to ministry does nothing but stifle a ministry. But, but the opposite actually expands this. And I'm just going to say this in, in, a, in a tribute to some of the leadership that I've been exposed to through the years. I, I didn't really understand this as a young man, and I, I trekked off to the Master's Seminary at a very young uh, point in my life, and I was kind of enamored by the phenomenon of John MacArthur and all of the, you know, the videos and, and, and um, audios and books and all of that. And I thought, well, I've got to get close to this guy, right? And I did, and I moved to that area, and... And it was like, I had to pinch myself when I arrived there. I mean, it was just so much. But you know what? The first thing I learned, it took me like a week or two that I learned this. I learned right away, it's not all about John MacArthur. I realized that right away, at first to my disappointment. But I learned early on, as I began to get to know my professors, that there were masters of Hebrew, masters of Greek, masters of biblical languages, masters of Old Testament studies, New Testament studies, theology, masters of pastoral ministry and apologetics. And these individuals I found, initially to my disappointment, would share the pulpit with the big man himself, who, who, who gets a lot of the attention. But these guys would come up and they would, they would share this ministry with him. And I found that there would be times he was out of the pulpit for two and three months at a time. And in its place was this individual who needed the experience and needed to grow and had amazing things to offer. And I got to know these guys. And it soon became a reality to me that that whole image just kind of diminished. And I saw, look at all this benefit that I can learn as a result of these others who are being included in the ministry, the challenges of others and strategically placing others for the best overall product of the church. See, folks, we need to disabuse our minds that if we hire a pastor, that he'll just be the guy to do everything. And he'll just be the guy to do all the preaching and all the teaching and all the shepherding and all the ministry and all the worship aspects will be taken care of by him, all the outreach, everything we need done in the church, the pastor will do. Listen, Jesus Christ could not fulfill that job description. And that is not the design of Scripture who, which says that he has given gifts to the church. And so we're going to learn about these gifts next week here as we look at Timothy, an amazing, amazing gift to the church, and Epaphroditus. I hope you're excited about that. 
I hope that you will return with an open heart and a ready spirit to learn about these distinguishing marks of model ministry uh, ministers. And I hope that as you're challenged by these traits, even today, that you will begin working in your own life. How, how, do, how do I have a little firmer grasp on the Word of God? How, how do I today have a little bit more concern about the last day, the day of Christ, and biblical vision and outline, uh, outcomes? How do I tap into the true source of common joy just a little bit better? And how do I model this aspect of sharing the spiritual ministry? Some of you may need to let go of some things to share the ministry here at Chef Church. But some of you may need to step up into things and grasp them and develop in different areas. And all of us working together here, this is the ticket. This is the key. And we have so much more to see in, in what we can model as we look at Timothy and Epaphroditus next week. But I've uh, gone long. I thank you. I appreciate you all for your attention on this. And uh, it's an issue very close to my heart. You can probably tell. And I just pray God's blessing upon this church, whatever he would have in the future for us. I pray that it would be focused around these marks and, and that we are all ministers and that we are all serving the Lord in our different ways and shapes and forms. Let's pray together. Let's stand as we close and we'll sing a song. Our Heavenly Father, the, uh, the words of your book are certainly challenging to us, Lord, and I pray that all of the applications and personal encouragements and charges, Lord, that they would find a home in the hearts of each and every person here, Lord. We all need to uh, see how we fit into this process. We all need to um, um, play our role and and understand that it is work and toil and that there are times of rest as well, Lord. I don't want to demean good times of Sabbath rest so that we can be strengthened to get back to work. Uh, Lord, put the day of Christ more in the forefront of our minds, I ask, even in my own mind, Lord, that each day would count. And Father, may we see the blessing of this even in this church, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would add to our numbers those of like faith, those who understand this, and who want to be a part of this, Lord. Bring them um, from wherever you would have them come, we ask, ultimately for your glory, that you would be magnified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.